My assignment in this seminar is to give you an overview of the debate over lordship salvation. Most of you will have heard that term, I think, but if you haven't, that is a derisive name for the view that genuine saving faith in Christ, that is, authentic trust in Christ as Savior, also entails a humble, sincere confession that he is rightfully Lord of all. So if someone remains steadfastly rebellious against the authority of Christ, that person is not a true believer, even if he, even if he professes faith in Christ. Another way to say it is, if you have not truly believed, or you have not truly believed in Christ, if you remain unrepentantly committed to a life of sin, turning to Christ in faith necessarily entails turning from sin. The point is not that we instantly become sinless when we're saved. Nobody teaches that. Nobody believes that. But what we're saying is that if your faith is truly genuine, your conversion will begin the process of sanctification. Because in biblical terms, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now, I'll say at the start, I don't like the term lordship salvation, Again, that is a scornful term that was invented by critics. In fact, here's what John MacArthur wrote about that expression in his book, The Gospel According to the Apostles. He says, quote, I don't like the term lordship salvation. I reject the connotation intended by those who coined the phrase. It insinuates that a submissive heart is extraneous or supplementary to saving faith, but Surrender to Jesus' lordship is not an addendum to the biblical terms of salvation. The summons to submission is at the heart of the gospel invitation throughout Scripture. Now, nevertheless, for the sake of argument, I'm I'm not going to quibble today over the term lordship salvation. I may even use it, but to be even-handed, let's call the opposing view no lordship salvation. The technical name for no-lordship theology is antinomianism. Uh, So, in fact, don't be intimidated by that word, antinomianism. Here's a definition also from John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to the Apostles. He defines antinomianism as, quote, the idea that behavior is unrelated to faith or that Christians are not bound by any moral law. Antinomianism radically separates justification and sanctification, and thus it treats practical holiness as optional and elective. That's a good definition of antinomianism. And by the way, there's more than one brand of antinomianism. What we're concerned with in this seminar this morning is no lordship doctrine, and and this is a particular brand of antinomianism that doesn't normally, unlike other antinomians, they don't focus their attack necessarily on the Ten Commandments or the moral law, but instead they redefine faith as a kind of bare intellectual assent. So that in this view, belief in Christ as Savior entails just a notional nod of agreement without any real moral significance or without any kind of heartfelt conviction. You just give mental assent to the idea that Christ promises salvation to anyone who will believe he is Savior. 
Now, it's important to remember that antinomianism is, first of all, a theological opinion. So when we're saying someone is an antinomian, antinomian, that's not necessarily even a comment about how they behave. That's a comment about what they believe. You don't have to be living a debauched lifestyle in order to qualify as an antinomian. Some people hold this view because someone they love who professes faith in Christ lives like the devil, or perhaps they have a loved one who died and while they were pursuing a, a pattern of gross, unrepentant sin, and, and they want a doctrine that will let that person into the kingdom. Also, the no-lordship view often goes hand-in-hand hand with deeper life doctrine. You'll find a lot of people who promote this view also teach a sort of second-level kind of sanctification, deeper life doctrine. The deeper life antinomian will always acknowledge that Christians ought to pursue holiness, but what makes him an antinomian is he, review, he regards holiness as a second-level elective. You don't have to be sanctified, but you need to choose that. That's what they teach. In other words, under this view... <laughs> Good works and obedience are seen as optional and totally, ultimately totally irrelevant to the question of whether a person's faith is genuine or not. Some antinomians are even legalistic. You'd think that antinomianism and legalism would be opposites, uh, but they are actually twin errors. They're not polar opposites. They often exist side by side and, and in the same person because... Both errors, antinomianism and legalism, emerge from the view that repentance and obedience and good works, those are all purely the results of human effort. That's what both antinomians and legalists believe. Legalism and no lordship doctrine actually have a lot in common because underlying both of these views is a tendency to deny or downplay the truth that genuine holiness is the fruit of God's grace at work in the believer. They think holiness is a human work, purely human work. So the bottom line, those who accept no lordship doctrine miss the whole point of Ephesians 2.10. It's, it's ironic because Ephesians 2.8.9 is perhaps their very favorite text of all, but they miss the point of verse 10, namely that good works have been prepared by God beforehand so that we should walk in them. And they ignore, and in fact, they often flatly contradict the truth of Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, which says that the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present world, which this highlights the danger that's inherent in no lordship antinomianism. I've stressed that this is a doctrinal position, and you don't have to live an ungodly life in order to qualify as an antinomian, but what we believe does ultimately affect how we live, and this type of doctrine can be, and it often is, used to cover uh, or justify some secret sin. It's also true that there are some antinomians who do live in open debauchery. And so I want to be clear about this. I don't think everyone who leans towards antinomian opinions is automatically an evil person, but I do think that antinomianism is an evil doctrine. 
It's a false and unbiblical teaching that accommodates and in the long run fosters ungodliness. Furthermore, no lordship doctrine is clearly refuted by the by the plain meaning of numerous texts in Scripture. And so I'll admit that when someone wants to argue obsessively that it corrupts the gospel if we call sinners to repentance, then I typically wonder, what is the underlying motivation for that person's opinion? Because it can't be good. Now, let me be clear about what we teach. We teach that holiness and good works are the inevitable fruit of saving faith. Good works are not a precondition or a prerequisite to faith or salvation. Uh, they are, they're not a prerequisite to genuine belief. They are the fruit of it. They are, they are the fruit, not the cause of it. And good works certainly don't belong to the substance or the definition of faith. If you define faith so that it's in any way dependent on good works, you've gone too far. In other words, Faith, real faith, is complete at the first moment when the penitent heart cries out to the Savior. There's no prerequisite work that you have to do. Saving faith is not incomplete until you get baptized or do some good work. However, if a person's faith is genuine, it will immediately begin to germinate and the fruit will come so that there's no such thing as a perpetually fruitless believer. Matthew 7, verse 17, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Those are the words of Jesus, who also said, by their fruit you shall know them. So there is a sense in which you can look at the behavior of someone and determine whether he's a genuine believer or not. And furthermore, God is the one who grants repentance. Repentance is not a human work. Acts Acts 11, 18 God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. God is also the source of genuine faith, Romans 12.3. God has allotted to each believer a measure of faith. Faith comes from God. When a sinner responds to the gospel with repentant faith, that is to the credit and the glory of God. Neither the faith nor the repentance is a work that the sinner does for himself. So that's the gist of the conflict between lordship salvation and the no lordship error. It's pretty simple, actually. Our our good works is obedience and good works the inevitable fruit of faith, or is it not? And Scripture says it is. So I want to stand with that. Now, I also want to explain and give you a little history here. Where my interest in this subject started some 52 years ago when I was first converted... So I need to give you a brief testimony. I didn't grow up in an evangelical church. And the first time I remember having the gospel explained to me was when I was a senior in high school, about a month before I graduated. Some of you have already heard my testimony, so I won't go through it in detail. But here's a short version. I picked up my Bible to read one night, which is something I had never actually done in earnest before. But... That night I opened my Bible at random, and it fell open to the first page of 1 Corinthians. And so I started reading, and I thought, by the way, that's not where you'd send a high school senior to find the gospel, right? 1 Corinthians. And I'd, I'd never read more than a verse or two at a time, but that night I thought, 
maybe I'll read the whole book. And so I counted the pages, and it was longer than I hoped it would be. <laughs> but I thought, it's, it's worth the effort. Let's try. And so I started reading, and the first three chapters of that epistle seriously convicted me. It's like it was written directly to me because I had immersed myself in politics and philosophy and classical music, and my highest goal in life was to be sophisticated and intellectually dazzling and and wise in the ways of the world. Those of you who know me are probably amused at my adolescent ambition, you know, I wanted to be sophisticated, as Calvin might say, good luck with that. (laughs) But still, that's how I thought I might make myself acceptable to God. But those first three chapters of 1 Corinthians are dominated by the truth that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And the passage that hit me like a hard gut punch was 1 Corinthians Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 19, which says, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. My first love was politics, and I thought, it's like talking about politics, the wisdom of this world. It's foolishness with God. When I read that, I knew I was lost. But I kept reading because I wanted to find a way out of what seemed to me like a hopeless condition. And I read until I got to chapter 12, where these words grabbed me by the throat and would not let go. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, I was obviously a novice. Actually, I was unsaved. I was by no means a skilled interpreter of Scripture, I barely understood the context of 1 Corinthians 12. The only reason I understood any of it is my best friend was the son of a Pentecostal faith healer. So I had a little knowledge about speaking in tongues and charismatic gifts, and that's what the context is about. But but I, I didn't really get this, but what I did understand, and I have never let go of it, and this is a truth that I would literally die for, is that to confess from the heart that Jesus is Lord, that is necessary evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's life. The Scripture says no one can even say this without the Holy Spirit empowering him. And in the providence of God, through a series of events that all happened within days, that very same week, I kept encountering the gospel. The next day, the day after that, someone handed me a gospel tract that explained the doctrine of justification by faith. Two days after that, I heard an evangelist preach on the subject of the crucifixion of Christ, and he was preaching from Isaiah 53, and he talked about sin and atonement and the grace of God towards sinners, and by the end of that week, I was a believer, fully confessing that Jesus is Lord. That was in the spring of 1971. I enrolled in Moody Bible Institute and graduated four years after that. And at Moody, I learned a lot of biblical content. All of my professors consistently and constantly affirmed the inerrancy and the total reliability of Scripture. In those days, Moody upheld the authority of Scripture, and I'm grateful for that. Those years at Moody instilled in me a love for biblical preaching 
It strengthened my commitment to the authority of Scripture, and it gave me a heart for missions and evangelism. But some of the things that I was taught in my theology classes at Moody left me somewhat conflicted and confused. I had at least 12 semester hours of theology at Moody. The main textbook in every theology course I took was Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Burkhoff, you know, was a Dutch Reformed theologian, and his famous work on systematic theology was first published in 1932, and so it's more than 90 years old now, and it's classic. It's a highly recommended book, but at the same time, at least half a dozen of my classes had as required reading Charles Ryrie's book, Balancing the Christian Life. So here's why this caused confusion for me. Burkhoff says this about faith. He writes, Faith is not merely a matter of the intellect, nor of the intellect and the emotions combined. It is also a matter of the will, determining the direction of the soul. It's an act of the soul going out towards its object and appropriating this. Without this activity, the object of faith remains outside of him. And in saving faith, it is a matter of life and death that the object, which he's talking about Christ there, be appropriated. True saving faith therefore consists in a personal trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, including a surrender of the soul as guilty and defiled to Christ and a reception and appropriation of Christ as the source of pardon and spiritual life. Burkhoff defines the gospel as an invitation to accept Christ in repentance and faith. That's exactly how he says it. Those are his his very words. And notice he includes repentance and faith. And in fact, those words, repentance and faith, or faith and repentance, he sometimes reverses them. But you can search. I have his systematic theology now in electronic form, and so I looked it up. Those words appear together more than a hundred times in Burkhoff's systematic theology, faith and repentance, or repentance and faith. And it's always in contexts where Burkhoff discusses conversion, or where he deals with the gospel call to sinners. Or he, he says, quote, the representation of the way of salvation, in other words, the preaching of the gospel, must be supplemented by an earnest invitation, and then he, he puts some scripture references, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 and 20, and even a solemn command, John 6, verse 28 and 29, and Acts 19, verse 4, a command to repent and believe, unquote. In other words, Louis Burkhoff clearly and emphatically taught the view that critics have labeled lordship salvation. That was standard Protestant theology, frankly, until maybe the 1950s or so. Ryrie, on the other hand, was clearly not in favor of calling sinners to repentance. Unless, he said, unless you first explain that repentance doesn't require anyone to renounce sin. He defined repentance as simply a change of mind about Jesus. He says, quote, Is repentance a condition for receiving eternal life? Yes, if it is changing one's mind about Jesus Christ. No, if it means to be sorry for sin or even resolve to turn from sin. So he's emphatic about it. If you're going to preach repentance, he says, you must explain that this is not a call to turn from sin. Also, 
when giving the gospel to unbelievers, Ryrie didn't want any stress to be put on the fact that Christ is Lord. The very idea of, the, of surrender to the lordship of Christ was, these are Ryrie's words, quote, that's a false addition to the gospel, he says. Call people to surrender to the lordship of Christ. He wrote, quote, the message of faith only and the message of faith plus commitment of one's life to Christ as Lord cannot both be the gospel. Therefore, one of them is a false gospel, and it comes under the curse of Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. And Ryrie's book, the one that was required reading for us, had a chapter titled, Must Christ Be Lord to Be Savior? And his answer was an emphatic no. In stark contrast to what Burkhoff wrote, Ryrie claimed that saving faith means, quote, trust in Christ... Uh, sorry, Ryrie denied that saving faith was trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. Christ's lordship, he said, simply doesn't fit into the gospel formula. So Ryrie was teaching no lordship doctrine. Ryrie, of course, was the most influential professor of theology in and around Dallas Seminary, and he influenced, strongly influenced, an entire generation of evangelicals from starting from the late 1950s until, until he retired, I think, in the 1990s. By the way, the title of that chapter in Ryrie's book, Must Christ Be Lord to Be Savior?, that was also the exact title of a written debate that had been published a decade before that in Eternity Magazine. In 1959, John Stott and Everett S. F. Everett F. Harrison, that's hard to say, Everett F. Harrison, each of them wrote an answer for Eternity Magazine to the question, must Christ be Lord to be Savior? And Everett Harrison answered the question with a qualified no. He said, Christ does not need to be Lord in order to be Savior. He wrote, quote, Strong reasons exist for rejecting the notion that one must make Jesus his Lord as well as his Savior in order to be truly redeemed. Now, to be fair, I think Everett Harrison's view was a little milder than Charles Ryrie's. Ryrie had this entire category of fruitless believers whom he called carnal Christians. They were people, he said, whose appetites and behavior and character may look just like the rankest pagan, but Ryrie said, if they believe, they're redeemed, even if they don't live like it. And he theorized that a person could be saved and theoretically never bear any visible or identifiable spiritual fruit. And he also said that a believer might actually lapse into a state of utter carnality where the person would be permanently spiritually barren, devoid of any kind of fruit for the rest of his life. Everett Harrison, on the other hand, said that if a person's faith is genuine, then he wouldn't knowingly deny or refuse the lordship of Christ, but he said Christ's lordship is not the issue in salvation, and it is both unfair and confusing to the sinner to introduce the idea of Christ's lordship until after the person is converted. So you can see the evolution of this view from Everett Harrison, a kind of milder view, and then Ryrie took it to a further extreme, and Zane Hodges then took it to an even further extreme. But I'll take questions at the end if I take them, if we have time. Okay. In that Eternity article, Everett Harrison kept using that expression, make Jesus Lord. He said, 
we must first accept Jesus as Savior, and then he says, and these are his exact words, as we come to know him, we make him Lord. And that kind of language became commonplace. And in my early years as a Christian in the 1970s, most of mainstream evangelicalism was fairly steeped in the notion that you could accept Jesus as Savior through a kind of superficial, merely intellectual sort of faith, and then wait until later, years later, if you were so inclined, to decide whether you wanted to make him your Lord. You have the authority, supposedly, to make him Lord. Again, the allowance Ryrie made for those spiritually barren carnal Christians, as he called them, went much further than I think Everett Harrison ever would have theorized. And then, as I said, in the, in the 1970s, Zane Hodges was on the faculty at Dallas Seminary along with Ryrie, and he took Ryrie's view and carried it to an even further extreme. I think even Ryrie was probably uncomfortable with how far Zane Hodges and his followers took themselves into the black hole of antinomianism. Hodges theorized that a single moment of intellectual assent to the gospel is enough to guarantee eternal salvation, even if the convert quickly forsakes the faith and, and permanently abandons Christianity. Or in the parlance of today, suppose he you know, does a Josh Harris and publicly deconstructs. Hodge's argument was that a person like that is still guaranteed eternal life. Hypothetically, let's suppose uh, an unbeliever attends an event where a Christian and an atheist are having a formal debate, and he, he hears the Christian's arguments first, and in that moment, he decides that the arguments he just heard are reasonable. He accepts the first debater's premise that there is a God and Jesus is the only true and Uh, the the true and only Savior, and for the moment, he gives intellectual assent to the gospel. But then minutes later, he hears the atheist and decides, no, maybe the atheist's arguments are more persuasive. And so before he even leaves the building, he rejects Christianity and never again gives any serious thought to the claims of Christ. By Zane Hodges' reckoning, that guy could rest in the promise of eternal life because he did believe in Jesus as Savior, even though his faith lasted less than 20 minutes. And those who follow Zane Hodges in this teaching will say, shame on anyone who teaches anything that might unsettle that guy's assurance. This is their big complaint with lordship salvation. If lordship salvation is true, then a guy like that can't even have any assurance. Trust me, I've had conversations with several people who hold that view. Zane Hodges was by no means alone in embracing and propagating this radical flavor of no lordship antinomianism. There were uh, some other equally radical teachers, I think of Mike Kokoris, who was pastor of the Church of the Open Door here in Los Angeles in the, in the mid-80s, and Ray Stanford, who was the founder of Florida Bible College, Both of them aggressively taught this kind of radical antinomianism. They said it's out-and-out heresy to call a sinner to repentance or to urge any unbeliever to surrender to the lordship of Christ. Or it's heresy, they said, to believe that turning to Christ means repenting or renouncing any kind of sin. They also denied that the gospel calls sinners even to become disciples of Christ because they said 
Discipleship is costly, but salvation is free. Now, I'm not going to catalog the moral failures of these men and other well-known no-lordship apologists, but several of the most aggressive advocates of this view fell into scandalous moral failures, including Micah Koros and Ray Stanford. And I'm convinced that they were drawn to this doctrine in the first place because it seemed an easy way for them to justify their secret sins. And you can use Google if you want to find out what became of Mike Kokoros or Ray Stanford. I'm not going to recount it. But, and incidentally, as far as I can tell, Ray Stanford, president founder of, I think it was called Miami Bible College, uh, he was the one who coined the nickname Lordship Salvation for the view that he opposed. And one of the main beliefs that underlies the no-lordship system is the idea that if repentance entails a renunciation of sin, then repentance must be regarded as a human work. And since Scripture says you've been saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, they therefore are trying to eliminate from the gospel message any hint of a summons to repent. In short, they deny that to turn from turn to Christ requires you to turn in any way from sin. Now, that's exactly contrary to Hebrews 6, verse 1, which says the most elementary teaching about Christ, indeed, the very foundation of gospel truth, is is that summons calling sinners to repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Those things go hand in hand. In fact, those are the exact words Scripture uses, Hebrews 6, 1, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. There is no more elementary doctrine of Christianity. In fact, the writer of Hebrews there is listing this as one of the elements of our faith. And there's nothing more elementary. There's no more fundamental article of faith for the Christian than what 1 Corinthians 12 says, the Holy Spirit himself empowers us to confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, think this through. If you eliminate the idea of repentance from dead works, to take that out of the gospel message, you're going to need to mute any discussion of sin or sinfulness, the fallen of humanity. If you can't stress the problem of sin, then there really is no need to explain to sinners why they need atonement. Ultimately, no lordship doctrine eats away at the very heart of the gospel message, and so During that era in the mid-20th century when varieties of no-lordship doctrine began to dominate evangelical teaching, the result was a message that thoroughly emasculated the gospel. The message became, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And most evangelicals were absolutely convinced that that is the way we need to proclaim the gospel message to the world. The Four Spiritual Laws, published by Campus Crusade, that more or less canonized that phrase as, in the minds of most evangelicals, as the best and most effective way to summarize the gospel. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Campus Crusade also had a a little blue follow-up tract telling people who had already accepted Christ as their Savior that now they should consider making Him their Lord too. So this was ingrained in their literature. And they purposely bifurcated Christ's offices so that people believed you could have Jesus as Savior 
even while you were denying or spurning or merely giving lip service to his lordship. And that, of course, is a serious corruption of the doctrine of justification by faith. In the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 6, verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. And verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Again, may it never be. Or in the words of Jesus from Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? And the Lord goes on, the one who hears my word and does not do accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus was using that as a metaphor for eternal damnation, talking to people who call him Lord but don't do what he says. He says, that's not genuine saving faith. Nevertheless, for multitudes of American evangelicals in the 20th century, they embraced the idea that sanctification is an optional kind of second blessing that occurs thanks to some post-salvation crisis of faith. It's a two-stage deal. So you accept Jesus as Savior, and that's enough for justification and assurance. And then sometime later, if you choose to become a disciple rather than a garden variety believer, you can make Jesus Lord. It's your choice. But of course, it's totally optional. According to Scripture, bowing to Jesus as Lord is not optional for believers. It's inevitable. John MacArthur wrote two books in the late 80s and early 90s that answered the no lordship doctrine. To my knowledge, no one has ever written or even attempted to write a serious, much less definitive answer to the second of those two books. The second book, the sequel, was titled The Gospel According to the Apostles. I've quoted from it a couple of times. That book is usually ignored by critics who are keen to portray lordship salvation as error or work salvation. And in my judgment, it stands up very well as a thorough and definitive reply to the noisiest critics of John MacArthur. Nevertheless, this controversy over so-called lordship salvation seems to resurface repeatedly in waves. It comes back at least once a decade. Antinomians are, you know, they're like the Amalekites in the Old Testament. You, you might think you've, they've been dealt a decisive defeat, but they somehow manage to regroup and recruit people who don't understand what a crushing blow has been dealt to their system, and they come back with the same failed arguments again and again. And I realize... There must be more than a thousand people who regularly attend Grace Church today who weren't even born in 1993 when the Gospel According to the Apostles was first published. So if you're confused by these issues or if you're the least bit troubled by the fact that there are still some noisy voices out there in social media who claim John MacArthur and Grace Community Church are teaching salvation by works, I want to encourage you to get that book and read it, The Gospel According to the Apostles. You should also, of course, read The Gospel According to Jesus. That's the more famous of the two books. It's a great book. It is arguably John MacArthur's best book dealing with a point of controversial doctrine. But as the title suggests, The Gospel According to Jesus had a pretty narrow focus dealing with the evangelistic content of Jesus preaching. How did Jesus call people to follow him? 
How did he summon people to faith? How did he preach the gospel? The gospel according to Jesus answers that question. But the gospel according to the apostles is a more thorough, systematic study of biblical soteriology. It covers all the questions and answers all of the critics. And the gospel according to the apostles deals with some issues in this debate that the gospel according to Jesus didn't address in quite as much depth, like the doctrine of assurance and the principle of sola fide, and the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and the relationship of justification and sanctification. All of those things are dealt with most thoroughly in the gospel according to the apostles. So I recommend that. And let me say this for people who might listen to this recording online. If you are inclined to be a critic of lordship salvation, and yet you haven't even read the gospel according to the apostles, my advice is, Hold off publishing your criticism until you've read it. The antinomians of the 1970s were almost entirely Dallas Seminary-style dispensationalists. And that was so much the case that when James Montgomery Boyce critiqued the no-lordship error, he referred to it as the Dallas Doctrine, which made the Dallas Theological Seminary people furious. But it was true, this view had a much bigger footprint than Dallas Theological Seminary, but all the lines traced back to DTS. And in the early 70s, when I was converted, the spiritual and geographical center of American evangelicalism was Wheaton, Illinois. Virtually every blue-chip evangelical institution had headquarters or, at the very least, some strong ties to Wheaton. Wheaton was, of course, home to Wheaton College and Christianity Today magazine and the National Association of Evangelicals, Tyndall House, Victor Books, and several other evangelical publishing companies. And it was also the home to many large missionary organizations, evangelical missionaries. Moody Bible Institute's campus was located in downtown Chicago, but 90% of the faculty in my student years and the staff at Moody, 90% of them lived in the Wheaton area. So Even Moody had ties, close ties to Wheaton. And the doctrinal homogeneity among these organizations was, I would say, comparable to their geographical solidarity. In other words, they were pretty much all in the same place theologically. Virtually all Wheaton-style evangelicalism had roots in old-style dispensationalism. I'm talking about John Nelson Darby, the founder of dispensationalism, Cyrus Ingerson Schofield, the writer of the Schofield Bible, Lewis Sperry Chafer, who was one of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary. There weren't a lot of strong Reformed influences in the upper echelons of leadership in Wheaton-style evangelicalism in the early 1970s. And in those days, the wall of separation between dispensationalists and their Reformed brethren It was a lot harder to traverse than it is today. And in those days, Reformed denominations and and all of their institutions tended to converge around Grand Rapids, the way dispensationalists clustered in Wheaton. So you had these, you know, two camps. Are, Are you Wheaton or are you Grand Rapids? And that said a lot about a person's theology. But from the early part of the 20th century until at least the the mid 1970s. The brand of religion that constituted, I think, the evangelical mainstream was the Wheaton flavor. It was heavily influenced 
by the revivalism of D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. In fact, those are the three most influential American evangelists of the past 100 years, 150 years. Moody, Billy Sunday, and Billy Graham. And can I be candid? All three of them were pretty weak theologians. That's true, especially of D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday. I, I don't think it overstates the case to say that both... Moody and Billy Sunday were novices doctrinally, and both of them were susceptible to fringe influences, especially deeper life doctrine from the Keswick movement, uh, without diminishing the very real good that D.L. Moody did. He exemplified and, and fostered a totally superficial approach to doctrine. He, he was by no means a precise or careful theologian, and he really didn't care to be one. Billy Sunday was even more shallow theologically. He was a baseball player who was famously converted, and and he was purposely crass in his style of delivery. Evangelical Christianity actually became disturbingly lowbrow from the beginning of the 20th century on, and Billy Graham tried to get away from the, that boorish style. He didn't like Billy Sunday climb up on the piano to preach or any of that stuff. But despite his attempts to bring the, the veneer of polite refinement to large-scale evangelicalism, Billy Graham remained much too superficial when it came to doctrine. And in fact, because of his ecumenical approach to evangelism, Billy Graham purposely had to downplay or omit significant parts of the gospel message that he knew would challenge his partnership with Roman Catholics. If you're going to partner in evangelism with Roman Catholics, you cannot preach the doctrine of justification by faith with clarity. And Billy Graham didn't. Now, I know people from my generation can hardly stand to hear any criticisms of Billy Graham, but that is simply a fact. He could not be clear on the doctrine of justification by faith and maintain Roman Catholic support for his crusades, so he had to tone down certain truths. And Billy Graham was the single most influential force when it came to shaping Wheaton-style evangelicalism in those years. And one other thing I, I don't, want to admit, don't want to omit, uh, in 1951, V. Raymond Edmond was president of Wheaton College, and he published a little book titled Finney Lives On, in which he whitewashed Charles Finney's outright Pelagianism. Finney was a heretic, and he whitewashed that and held Finney's brand and style of evangelism up to, as an example that mainstream evangelicals needed to recover. And so for the next 25 years or so, Finney was generally hailed among Wheaton's evangelical mainstream as kind of an icon whose, whose ministry embodied what evangelical gospel preaching ought to be like. And, and if you know anything about Finney, you know that his emphasis was, of course, on the sinner's will, the choice the sinner makes. And the preacher called for sinners to make a decision for Christ rather than using the biblical language of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about faith. It's not about repentance. It's about a, a decision. By the way, the, the, that is 
Acts 20, 21 that I just quoted, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the biblical description of apostolic gospel ministry. They were solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Acts says. But 20th century evangelicalism quickly abandoned the and purposely abandoned the language of repentance. And so by the 1950s, the the preferred language was to call for a decision. In fact, the magazine of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association to this day is called Decision. Decisionism is what it was. Superficiality and uh, a version of the gospel that was designed to appeal to the emotions rather than the conscience. These became kind of the hallmarks of 20th century evangelical gospel preaching. Decisionism and shallowness and and uh, a, a gospel message that omitted the idea of repentance from sin. By 1971, that was the year I was converted, Wheaton-style evangelicalism was really a force to be reckoned with in popular America. Hal Lindsey's book, The Great Late Planet Earth, was a New York Times bestseller for several months before and after my conversion at that same time. The Jesus Movement was underway here on the West Coast at the time, and most of those who were converted in that movement, if they didn't get sucked into cults, as many of them did, they ended up in Calvary Chapel, which was a blend of conservative charismatic doctrine with Wheaton-style dispensationalism. And Campus Crusade for Christ was the sort of quintessential Wheaton-style organization. And in fact, within a year after my conversion, Campus Crusade organized an event in 1972. The event was called Explo 72. If you've, if you've never heard of Explo 72, you should look up the Wikipedia entry on it. Explo 72 was a big deal in 1972, and it was designed to be an evangelical version of the 1969 Woodstock Festival. They were copied deliberately from Woodstock, and from a purely numerical point of view, it was a huge success. 80,000 students attended. That was, that was a bigger crowd than that year's Super Bowl drew. That was Super Bowl VI, by the way, when Roger Staubach beat the Miami Dolphins. Huge Super Bowl, and they didn't even have the same size crowd as Explo 72. In my judgment, Explo 72 represented the apex of popularity for Wheaton-style religion and all of its distinctive features, especially decisionism and superficiality and a, a raw appeal to emotion with little or no stress on the actual gospel. Other than lots of generic mentions of Jesus' name, Explo 72 had almost no actual gospel content. There was no careful explanation of what the Bible says about sin and redemption through the atoning work of Christ. There was no mention of justification by faith. And in fact, just like the Billy Graham crusades of that era, this event was purposely designed to be as ecumenical as possible. So lots of Roman Catholics participated, and no one wanted to offend them by bringing up the principles of sola fide and sola scriptura and sola gratia, or Christ as the only mediator between God and men. These things were unmentionable at that conference. And by the way, when I say there was a pathological shallowness to it, 
I'm not overstating the case. Chris Christofferson was one of the headline acts at Explo 72. And I read a, an article a, f- a few months ago where more than 40 years after that event, they, they talked to one of the guys who had helped plan Explo 72. He was still gushing over the emotional impact and all the noise and spectacle, and he told a reporter, and I quote, It seemed just so loud and so upbeat. People were really emotionally involved in the music. And he still believed that all that raw emotion, unanchored to any kind of gospel truth, was a good thing. He thought it was a good thing. Lots of people must have been thinking the same way because that style caught on. And the superficial emotionalism that that brand of religion had brought into churches Uh, began to influence people's philosophy of ministry, church leaders' philosophy of ministry. And the result was the pragmatism of the seeker-sensitive movement. Megachurches arose whose sole idea, the main goal, was to draw crowds, not to actually proclaim the gospel or to teach people the truth about doctrine or scripture, but just to use entertainment and a spectacle to draw the biggest crowds possible. And all of this filled the churches with people whose knowledge of the gospel was so superficial and their faith was so barren of fruit that for decades now, it's pretty frankly frankly, pretty hard not to surmise that, and in fact, I, I, I say this almost as a fact, I'm certain this is correct, that there are more false converts than real ones among the crowds of people who self-identify as evangelicals. The fact that somebody tells me he's an evangelical doesn't necessarily convince me that he really knows the Lord. And all of those trends were what motivated John MacArthur in the 1980s to critique no lordship antinomianism in a series of books, The Gospel According to Jesus, The Gospel According to the Apostles, Hard to Believe and a whole series of books like that. I'm glad he took on this issue because he has helped a lot of us to straighten out our thinking about the gospel. And in fact, the first time I ever met John MacArthur face-to-face was in 1981. I'd been a Christian for 10 years. I had spent three of those years in youth ministry in Florida where I was shepherding a group of young people, students, who believed they were Christians, every one of them, because they had invited Jesus into their hearts when they were toddlers. But as teenagers, they were as carnal and unsanctified as the unchurched hoodlums in my neighborhood, and some of them even worse. And I had taken my youth group through a study of 1 John, and which, you know, talks about how to know whether you're genuinely a believer or not gives evidences of salvation. We had worked through that entire book, and some of the students in my youth group realized that they were not Christians, and they had never been soundly converted. And to my surprise, when they began to be converted, some of their parents were, at first at least, pretty upset with me. They scolded me for teaching their kids lordship salvation. I had I had listened to John MacArthur's sermons on 1 John. Those are some of the first sermons Grace to You carried on the radio. And the Tampa Bay area where I lived was one of the first radio stations to carry Grace to You. So I'd been listening to John and teaching some of the same material to my youth group. And and what John taught was so helpful and encouraging to me. I, I understood right away, he gets it. 
He understands what I'm up against with this youth group. And, and after three years of being there, I left Florida and went back to Chicago because Moody Press wanted me to return there for a second tour of duty. I had worked there before I'd gone to Florida. And they arranged for me to be at a meeting with John MacArthur to talk about the MacArthur New Testament commentary series. They were just floating the idea of that series of books. And, and that was where I met John for the first time. We sat around a round table with a bunch of editors, and I sat through this meeting. Didn't say much, but when the meeting was over and everybody's milling around the punch bowl and all that, I went over to John, and, and my very first words ever to him were this. I said, I listen to you every day on the radio, and I think you need to do a book on the lordship issue. And he said, I plan to. I even have a title in mind, The Gospel According to Jesus. That was the start of my relationship with John. Those are the first words we ever exchanged, and that book and its sequel were formative in my life and my thinking, and they helped me finally untangle the confusion between what I had learned from Louis Burkhoff and what I read from Charles Ryrie. Now, again, Ryrie was dispensationalism's most important theologian, and Burkhoff was a Dutch Reformed guy, also an important theologian. And when MacArthur wrote The Gospel According to Jesus, many of the old-line Schofield dispensationalists saw that book as a threat to every aspect of their system. My former pastor and my mentor previous to John was Warren Wearsby, whom I dearly loved, uh, but he put out a sharply negative reaction to the book because he believed the gospel according to Jesus was an attack on dispensationalism as a system. Wearsby said this. I remember his words. He said, MacArthur's book is like a bad photograph. It's overexposed and underdeveloped. That stung. But some in the Reformed side loved the book for that very same reason. Gary North, who was the theonomic tub-thumper who in those days would weigh in on practically every controversy, he wrote what was a breathlessly positive review of the gospel according to Jesus in which he said this. I've got to read it to you. These are his exact words. Oh, my! Exclamation mark. To say that this book is causing consternation in the just confess Jesus as Savior, but not necessarily as Lord and be saved camp, is putting it mildly. Dr. MacArthur has done more than launch a torpedo into the side, side of the good ship antinomianism. He has, in fact, detonated a charge from deep inside its bulwarks. Now, notice the imagery he used there. He, he implies that MacArthur was deep inside the bulwarks of antinomianism, but that John had become a turncoat and, and a saboteur to the antinomian movement. Of course, it, Gary North was happy to see the bomb detonated, and he seemed to think MacArthur had previously been an antinomian insider. And some of the dispensationalist critics likewise treated John as if he had committed some kind of, like he was a traitor. But the gospel according to Jesus in no way represented any kind of change of opinion for John MacArthur. In fact, recordings exist for every sermon John has ever preached here at Grace Community Church since his very first Sunday as a pastor, and anyone can download those for free from gty.org. You can dissect those sermons as carefully as you like, and you will never find any tincture of 
antinomianism in anything John has ever preached. His very first sermon here at Grace Church, February 19, 1969, was titled, How to Play Church, and it was an exposition of Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, and you can listen to it at gty.org, and if you, if you hear it you know, with, a, with an open mind, I think you'll see it sounds like a manifesto against anti-no-lordship antinomianism. Gary North, like a lot of Reformed writers, considered dispensationalism inherently antinomian. Because, let's be candid, dispensationalism and antinomianism have often gone hand in hand. And in fact, in the Gospel according to the Apostles, there's an appendix titled, What is Dispensationalism and What Does It Have to Do with Lordship Salvation? Where MacArthur traces the roots of of Dallas Seminary-style no-lordship doctrine all the way back to Lewis Berry Chafer and C.I. Schofield, and he shows why it is that antinomianism flourished in the systems those men created. Gary North was as positive in his review as Wiersbe was negative. He said, quote, This book is excellent. This is the best theological book by a dispensationalist in our generation. And I bring all this up because here's a point I don't want you to miss. The criticism that the gospel according to Jesus has received over the past three and a half decades has come mostly from the dispensationalist side. Most in the Reformed camp have praised the book. Here's another quote from Gary North. He said, quote, Here's a major dispensationalist author who chose to have J.I. Packer, Calvinist theologian, and Neo-Puritan college professor write one forward, and James Montgomery Boyce, Calvinist theologian and Presbyterian minister, to write a second forward. But even more surprising is they both consented to write. Something very peculiar is going on here. And I'm convinced that these two books, John MacArthur's first two books on the lordship issue, actually helped provoke a major shift in the minds of multitudes of evangelicals, who, to, who, the way we think and speak about the gospel. In the circles of, circles of fellowship that we inhabit, you don't often meet anyone anymore who thinks that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is a valid way to start the gospel. We're past that, thankfully, and I think John MacArthur had a lot to do with that that seemingly impenetrable wall between people from dispensationalist backgrounds and people in the Reformed tradition, it hardly seems like much of a barrier anymore. And instead of Woodstock-style rock festival camp meetings, starting more than a decade ago, we've had conferences where the Word of God is taught. I'm thinking of the early Together for the Gospel gatherings, and now the G3 conferences. Multitudes of evangelicals today are more careful and far less superficial than their parents and grandparents were when it comes to how they deal with the gospel. And all of these are trends to celebrate. You ask what I'm encouraged about in the church, that's one thing. But antinomianism continues to resurface and lead people astray And it's one of those errors that I think will probably continue to trouble the church in wave after wave until Christ returns. And what's 
Remarkable to me nowadays and unexpected is that the most recent wave of antinomianism and, and the no lordship argument, most recently it's coming from people who consider themselves confessionally reformed. That's a bit of a surprise. And there, frankly, probably aren't that many of them, but they tend to be very noisy, and they're, they're prominent on social media, and they seem to think that blogs and tweets are the best place for them to make their case. So it makes a lot of noise. And, and depending on who you are plugged into on social media, you might think these guys are hugely influential, but candidly, they don't deserve whatever attention they get. And nevertheless, because they've managed to confuse a lot of unlearned and unstable people, I want to acknowledge that they're out there. And I want to reply to a handful of their arguments. I'm not going to name these critics, by the way, I, because some of them are people I love and have been friends with over the years. And I, I don't want to get dragged into a social media debate about issues that have already been answered more thoroughly in book-length treatments. So my main goal here is to steer you towards more helpful resources like the Gospel According to the Apostles and a couple of other books that I'm going to name. But one of the more credible critics is an author who is both a professor of historical theology and he's a pastor and he blogs. And in 2019, he wrote a 2,300-word blog post in which he outlined his views on the lordship issue and on John MacArthur. He's quite critical of the gospel according to Jesus, but only in the most general of terms. He says, for example that in MacArthur's book, quote, there are places where it seems as if our good works make faith what it is. My response to that is, really? Where? Because he doesn't say. He implies, however, that there were revisions made in the second edition of the Gospel According to Jesus that were sweeping rewrites made to correct substantial errors. The truth is, in the second and third, I edited all of those, the second and third editions of the book, we made only minor corrections to eliminate a few ambiguities, and plus we added two or three additional chapters. But nothing significant was changed in order to obscure what the original version said. You can check it for yourself, because the original version exists still out there in thousands of copies. But this blogging theological professor refers obliquely to the way MacArthur speaks. Those are his words. The way MacArthur speaks in the gospel according to Jesus. And it's clear he doesn't like the way MacArthur speaks, but here's the thing. In that entire essay, 2,300 words, he doesn't quote a single word of anything John MacArthur wrote in the book. Not one thing. He claims that MacArthur confounds law and gospel, but he doesn't cite a single instance of that. And candidly, when I first read his essay, I wondered if he'd actually even read the gospel according to Jesus. I think he actually drew most of his criticisms from other critics rather than reading the book for himself, and I'm quite certain he hasn't read the gospel according to the apostles because he misrepresents what John MacArthur actually believes and teaches. But why does this critic not like the way John MacArthur speaks? It sounds to me like his primary complaint is that John MacArthur isn't thoroughly reformed. He mentions repeatedly that MacArthur identifies as a modified dispensationalist, and in this critic's mind, that fact 
in and of itself seems sufficient proof that John MacArthur can't possibly be sound on soteriology and the gospel. And he seems annoyed that MacArthur's book is an exposition of the gospel according to Jesus rather than the gospel according to the Heidelberg Confession. He keeps quoting the Confession as if to imply that John MacArthur disagrees with what it says about faith and the gospel. But again, he doesn't cite a single quote to try to substantiate that impression that he's giving his readers. And for the record, John doesn't disagree with any of the passages from the Heidelberg Confession that this critic cites. In fact, I'm not sure if the critic has noticed, because I don't think he's read the book, but John actually quotes and affirms the Heidelberg Catechism on the doctrine of justification by faith in his survey of how the magisterial reformers answered the earliest antinomians. In fact, that quote is, if you want to look it up, it's on page 226 of the first edition. So it was in the first edition of the book. But surprisingly, this critic doesn't seem to like it when MacArthur cites and agrees with Reformed theologians. He says, quote, MacArthur selectively invokes Reformed writers here and there, like Louis, Louis Burkhoff and Gerhardus Voss, but they serve as appendages or draftees in what is for them an extramural argument. Burkhoff and Voss lived and worshipped and taught in the confessional Reformed world. And my answer to that is, okay, but... How does that in any way nullify MacArthur's agreement with them on the issues where they do indeed agree? What's the problem with that? And here's why I wonder whether this guy even read the book. Reformed writings are, are quoted voluminously through the gospel according to Jesus, not just selectively here and there. But plus, there is a large appendix devoted to documenting the history of Reformed teaching on this issue. But the critic's argument seems to be MacArthur shouldn't quote these guys, and he can't possibly agree with them because he has dispensationalist roots. Apparently, he thinks dispensationalists simply cannot honestly cite or agree with the Reformers on soteriology or any other point of doctrine. He writes, quote, Dispensationalists should not simply assume that the Reformers read the Bible as they do. They did not. He says, quote, Neither side in the lordship debate is deeply rooted in the Reformation. And yet, this critic himself cites several of the very same opinions and arguments that have been put forth by Zane Hodges and the other representatives of the most extreme no-lordship view. He seems to suggest, for example, that it's best not to mention repentance in connection with the gospel, which is about as unreformed as any position you could have. And in fact, if you watch, you'll notice that antinomians generally bristle whenever any imperative is preached from the pulpit of a church, especially if any command is given in connection with the gospel call. In their view, imperatives of any kind, that is, commands, are incompatible with gospel preaching. And, and if they were consistent with what they teach, some of them would be scolding the Apostle Paul for telling the unconverted Athenians in Acts 17.30, God is now commanding that everyone everywhere should repent. But this critic says, quote, the gospel is the announcement by Jesus and his apostles of what Christ has done for us outside of us. And that's true enough, but as we see throughout Scripture, the indicatives of the gospel, th those announcements of what Christ has done, 
they are commonly punctuated by the general call of the gospel, which includes the command to repent and believe. According to this critic, that's not logical and it can't be correct because he says, quote, The dead cannot and therefore do not repent. It is only those who have been given new life and true faith who are united to Christ by the Spirit who repent. He's saying you can't repent until God does a work in you. And okay, I actually agree with that statement, but that is not proof that the command to repent shouldn't be given to unbelievers in connection with the gospel. I mean, think about this. Lazarus had no inherent capability to walk out of the grave, but Jesus gave him that command anyway. For that matter, people dead in their trespasses and sins have no capacity to believe God or respond in any way. That's the whole point of Ephesians 2, and and I hope that fact does not keep this critic from calling them to faith, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, meaning that this is the means by which God sovereignly draws and regenerates and grants faith and repentance to unbelievers, because they hear the gospel call, which is a command. What I'm saying is, you're not preaching law when you call sinners to repent and, and trust Christ. Hopefully you understand that we are, as believers, ambassadors for Christ, as if God himself is pleading through us. And I hope that you declare what God commands and, and implore your hearers, actually beg them on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, because that's how Paul describes gospel ministry in 2 Corinthians 5. And if you think that somehow nullifies the indicatives of the gospel to make the gospel call a command, if you imagine that calling sinners to faith and repentance somehow obscures or or compromises the historical facts of what Christ has done on our behalf, then you need to think again. I could go on. This critic's most substantial complaint, and perhaps this is his central argument is the idea that John MacArthur confuses the law and the gospel, and thus he poisons the message of the gospel with doctrines and commandments that pertain to the law. And my answer is, if you think that, you need to read more carefully and listen more attentively, because in chapter 1 of the first edition, it's been bumped to chapter 2 by the addition of a new chapter in the anniversary edition, but in, in his opening chapter of the original edition of the book, MacArthur expressly says that the distinction between law and grace is vital. Law and gospel must not be confounded. They are different messages. They are not, however, contradictory messages. I've pointed this out before when I've preached from Titus chapter 2. Both law and grace teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Both law and grace say that we should live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. Both law and grace humble us and show us the virtues of self-control. Both law and grace say we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Both law and grace instruct us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In every respect, law and grace are in agreement, and grace is specifically in agreement with the commands and directives of the eternal moral law of God. Don't ever entertain the thought that law and grace or, or, or law and gospel contradict one another and that they're utterly incompatible. 
Because in every respect except one, the lessons of grace are in perfect agreement with what the law tells us. Here's how they differ. Here's that one difference. The law condemns us because we can't obey perfectly. Grace grants us forgiveness on the basis of Christ's own perfect obedience. But grace doesn't nullify the moral principles on which the law is based because those moral principles are a reflection of God's attributes and and therefore they are eternal. They, by definition, can't change or be done away with. And as MacArthur says in response to the dispensationalist antinomians, that means God's law is not rendered utterly irrelevant in the gospel era. It's okay for Christian ministers to preach the imperatives of Scripture, to walk people through the law. The New Testament itself is full of imperatives. Jesus himself said, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if it troubles you to hear that, you might be flirting with antinomianism. And antinomianism undermines not only the gospel, but also the law. As the, not only the law, but also the gospel. As the apostle says in Romans 7, verse 7, Is the law sin? May it never be. Rather, I would not have come to know sin except by the law. The law has a definitive purpose, and it's a good one. One final point. That theology professor's blog post about John MacArthur and the gospel according to Jesus made the claim that MacArthur overstates the seriousness of the antinomian error. He's basically saying antinomianism isn't that big a deal. And in support of that charge, he links to a YouTube video that was made by a guy who identifies himself as a graduate of the Master's University with a degree in biblical studies. I didn't know it when I first watched this, but I know and am friends with the father of this former student graduate who made this YouTube video. It's a 21-minute video in which this TMU graduate is sharply critical of John MacArthur and specifically his teaching on the Lordship of Christ. And he refers to a sermon John MacArthur preached on Jude 4. That's, that's where Jude warns about ungodly persons who he says have crept into the church unnoticed and they turn the grace of God into sensuality or, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Jude is talking about the extreme antinomians. No lordship devotees. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And in that sermon, John mentioned a comment that had been posted in social media by a master's seminary grad. And this guy was a pastor who graduated from the seminary who said he was formally renouncing lordship salvation. And he was using classic you know, antinomian rhetoric to defend his new new view. Now, John MacArthur cites this without actually saying who he's talking about. He doesn't name names. But the, the critic of that video, this kid who graduated from the college, knew the author of the tweet that John was res- responding to. It was a friend, he said, and the, and the guy who made the video, he held the same views. And this guy was angry. And his ultimate claim was a criticism of John MacArthur for suggesting that love for Christ is part and parcel of genuine saving faith. John said, if you have genuine faith, you will have a love for Christ. You can't be indifferent about him, or you don't really believe him. And this guy said, that's law, not grace. 
He said, that's the first and great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and that's law. So he's mingled law, he says, and that's where John MacArthur goes wrong. You don't have to love Christ in order to have saving faith. This guy was especially torqued that John MacArthur treats radical no-lordship doctrine as a kind of seriously disqualifying error, saying, if that's the view you hold, you shouldn't be in ministry. John had said, for, for many who buy into the no-lordship antinomian view, it's a doctrine that propels them in the direction of total apostasy. Either they or their followers will become apostate because of the, the dangerous influence of that doctrine. And here's the thing. That fellow posted that video in October of 2019. Two years later, that same guy, former graduate of uh, the Masters University, started posting videos explaining why he was deconstructing. That was his word, meaning he had decided to abandon Christianity completely. He divorced his wife. He renounced his faith. In other words, Although he was incensed at John MacArthur for suggesting that this brand of antinomianism might push you into apostasy, that is precisely what happened. And in the past year alone, this guy has uploaded more than 15 more videos deconstructing the faith that he once professed to hold. But he's still keen to complain that he hasn't exactly embraced Atheism, at the end of one of his deconstruction videos, he says this, and I quote, I am very spiritual. I don't know that I'm a Christian. Of course, Jesus wasn't a Christian. But I definitely love others. I love God. I love myself, unquote. (laughs) Now, remember, his argument two years before that was that love for God is a legalistic standard for spirituality. So I guess this guy's become a legalist himself. Anyway, back to the theologian blogger who quoted that guy as documentation for his claim that John MacArthur is exaggerating the dangers of no lordship doctrine. What did he do with that link to that video after the guy actually confirmed John MacArthur's point by becoming an apostate himself? What did the theology professor do? He quietly deleted it without noting that The expert opinion he had cited actually came from a guy who did, in fact, subsequently abandon the faith. Now, let me sum up. I don't think rank antinomianism of the no-lordship variety is as pervasive in the evangelical movement as it was 40 years ago, before John MacArthur wrote the gospel according to Jesus. But it troubles me to see this flavor of antinomianism making a comeback, especially since now it's coming from ostensibly reformed sources and and being propagated primarily through social media. Be on guard against it. And if you think John MacArthur overstates the dangers of antinomianism, Listen to what Samuel Rutherford said about it. Rutherford was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor and a theologian in the early 1600s, and he was a leader among the Covenanters, the most reformed of reformers. His generation was the bridge between the magisterial reformers and the Puritans. And here's what he said about antinomianism, quote, "'The papist is the black devil, taking away all certainty of assurance that we are in Christ or that any man can even know this.'" The antinomian is a golden white devil, a spirit of hell clothed with all heaven and the notions of free grace. And Rutherford goes on to say, 
that if good works are utterly irrelevant to the question of whether our faith is real, if that's what you think, he says, then you forfeit the joy and rejoicing that we have in a testimony of a good conscience. He points out that the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5.22, these are the best evidences that the Spirit is at work in us. And, And those who lack the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit don't have any right to a settled claim of assurance. Maybe, maybe a Christian falls into sin. doesn't mean he loses his salvation. It does mean he has no right to assurance as long as he is pursuing this sin. That is precisely the point the no-lordship antinomians object to. Their brand of antinomianism wants assurance along with a lack of commitment to Christ as Lord. It's a dangerous doctrine, and it's as dangerous in the hands of people who claim to be Reformed as it was in the hands of any old-style Schofield dispensationalist. Now, I promised to recommend some books. I don't have time to give you a long bibliography, so let me give you my three best suggestions. I've already recommended John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to the Apostles. To that, I would add a simple little volume by James Montgomery Boyce titled Christ's Call to Discipleship. And some of the best works to help straighten out the confusion on the lordship debate and the doctrine of assurance in particular, uh, I recommend anything by Joel Beakey on the doctrine of assurance. Beakey gets it. My favorite of his books on the subject is The Quest for Full Assurance, which is based on Beakey's doctrinal doctoral dissertation. So it's not light reading. And although the focus of the book is on the doctrine of assurance, it answers all of the major objections by those who are so keen to discredit the fact that God has ordained that his people should be distinguished by love and good works. All right, we've got five minutes. I will take a few questions. Did you have one? Yeah, that's a great question. Is, he asked, is Ryrie's teaching considered a different doctrine or a doctrine of demon, uh, demons, a different gospel? Ryrie himself answered that question, yes, when he said, these two things can't both be the gospel, and therefore one is under the curse of Galatians 1. I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I think there are people who hold this view out of ignorance or confusion who... There may be genuine believers who just don't understand the gospel well enough. Uh, and, and I might even put Ryrie himself in that category. I, I wouldn't necessarily even question his salvation. I do question his accuracy as a theologian. And for that reason, I don't recommend his books to people. I think he, he's greatly confusing. But I, I, I'm not going to categorize him as a non-believer. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's actually part of it. If you read that appendix in John MacArthur's book that is, I forget, I gave you the name of it. It's like, what is dispensationalism and what does it have to do with the lordship idea? Uh, he, he points out that dispensational and dispensationalism derives its name from the original dispensationalist view that God's dealings with humanity have 
varied and altered between law and grace, law and grace, so that, uh, for example, Abraham and the promise of the, the Abrahamic covenant that, you know, all the nations would be blessed in him, that, was, that introduced a dispensation of grace, salvation by God's grace. And then the Mosaic covenant introduced a new dispensation which was dominated by law, then the work of Christ and the church age is another dispensation of grace, but the following dispensation, the kingdom age, will be a new dispensation of law. And so they took things like the Sermon on the Mount and said, this is kingdom doctrine, and therefore it doesn't apply to the church today. And there, there are countless, or there were, most of them are out of print now, but there were countless uh, dispensationalist treatments of the Sermon on the Mount that basically said, this doesn't apply to the present dispensation because there's too much law in it. Right. They didn't see the kingdom of God as one thing that spans the whole realm of redemption. So when scripture talks about the kingdom and Jesus says the kingdom is within you, he says the kingdom is at hand and all these things. He's, he's not always talking about the earth, earthly manifestation of God's kingdom in the millennium. Uh, that wasn't necessarily what he was promising. He was talking about the kingdom as the realm of God's redemptive work. And so you are in the kingdom if you are a, a believer. And I, I think the early dispensationalists had a tendency to bifurcate things in a way that obscured that truth. And so, yes, I think their faulty view of the kingdom did partly at least lie at the root of that brand of antinomianism. Yes, sir. Yeah, the critics I'm talking about and refuse to name do generally come from they 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 do generally come from Escondido. That's true. All right, so I'll take uh, one more question from this side. Yes. Right. Yeah. And you can't put lordship up there in front because how can you possibly make Christ Lord enough to be accepted? Right. So, so his question is, uh, how, how much of this debate is tied in with the debate between Calvinists and Arminians? And, and I would say to a very large degree that's true. That's why it surprises me that any Reformed critic who considers himself a Calvinist would have a problem with this and, and try to argue that repentance is a human work. The Reformed have always taught that repentance is a gift of God. It's a work of God in the heart of a, of a sinner. Uh, that's actually where John MacArthur starts with the gospel according to Jesus. His primary argument, the starting point of his whole argument, is that if salvation is a work of God, then it can't be defective in any regard. Uh, I think he says it in those exact words. And um, uh, there, there were antinomian critics who jumped on that and said, well, this is, this is just Calvinist doctrine, and therefore we reject it. So I, I, don't think you can be, um, I don't think you can be a consistent Calvinist and embrace this kind of antinomianism. But I, but I should also say, Calvinism has always had its own problems with other kinds of antinomianism. Hyper-Calvinism and antinomianism have often been gone hand in hand. And in fact, 
in Spurgeon's day, some people referred to hyper-Calvinism as antinomianism. But what they were talking about was a kind of hyper-Calvinism. That's a more detailed argument than I have time to get into here. Uh, Yeah, I, I should let you go now. If I take one more question, we'll go over time. Thank you.